The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello, I'm Will Vasquez. I'm a sales desk manager here at Natexas Investment Managers. I'm here today with Kevin Maeda, our chief investment officer for our direct indexing strategy. Kevin, it's been a tough year uh, for the markets in 2022, but there may be a silver lining for equity investors who use separately managed accounts. If you wouldn't mind talking about direct indexing and what you've seen this year in the separately managed portfolios that you work with. Well, sure. Willie, as you know, uh, indexing strategies are a great way to get market exposure. Um, but as you know, you know, you see them go up or down, right? Mm-hmm. Like in today's markets. So if you used direct indexing within a separately managed account, though, that can take advantage of the markets in a way that traditional indexing can't because you can now take advantage of tax loss harvesting or other uh, unique strategies uh, available only with that format. For investors who are quite familiar with using separately managed accounts, can you describe how that works? With direct indexing, uh, instead of owning in a single fund, for example, with uh, you, you, the investors own stocks individually. So they own uh, you know, stock A, B, and C, for example. This allows the investor to tax loss harvest or sell securities at a loss, and not just securities, but individual tax lots as well within those specific securities. So if an investor does this uh, over time, for example, they can still uh, participate in market appreciation, but by tax loss harvesting throughout the year or over time, they can take advantage of realizing those losses, Mm -hmm. which can be used to offset capital gains in their other investments or be carried forward if they're not needed in the current year. In a year like today, can you give an example of of how that actually played out, given the volatility that we've had? Approaching, uh, say, Q1 of this year, markets have been declining. Uh, That type of market allows for even greater opportunities for tax loss harvesting, because most, if not all, securities in your portfolio might be down. Um, Q2 is really more of the same, where you started to see the market continue to decline. So again, we're taking advantage uh, of those losses as well to realize in the portfolios. Um, this can be a little different than uh, other scenarios where you have perhaps a short decline followed by a rapid rise, maybe uh, in Q1 of uh, 2020, for example, where markets fell very sharply in the first quarter, were able to perhaps loss harvest quite a bit, but then the markets appreciate thereafter. And so maybe you have very little to no uh, loss har- harvesting for the remainder of the year. When you talk about uh, strategies that are under a separately managed account wrapper, what are possibly some of the other benefits that advisors could uh, gain from using this type of vehicle? Yeah, there's actually a lot of different things people can do with a direct index in a separately managed account that they can't do with a packaged mutual fund or, or ETF, for example. So one very common thing we see are portfolios that transition. In other words, okay. they come in with an existing basket of securities. And for most investors, uh, a lot of times the only opportunity to do anything with that is to liquidate it and start fresh. But that will typically realize a lot of capital gains, uh, be very disadvantageous from a tax perspective. So what a lot of investors will do is they'll utilize uh, our strategies, bring in those positions in kind so that we're not selling them off initially. We can look through those, pick through them, try to retain as much as we can, and only sell off as much as necessary, either through tax loss harvesting or perhaps something's not in the index or they want to restrict out of the portfolio, or as long as they allow us to realize net capital gains, we can continue to realize some of those gains as well to reposition those portfolios. But again, what's different is that we typically will retain at least some of those positions as long as they're names within the index. Okay, so when I look at the evolution um, of the vehicles that are used in the industry, 
You went from a mutual fund to the adoption of an ETF. And now when you look at the gaining market share of a separately managed account, you know, you look at some studies out there. Cerulli says that over the next five years, separately managed accounts will grow faster than ETFs and mutual funds. Do you believe that is because of the um, things that you've listed, the customization, the tax efficiencies, and do you believe that to be the case? I, I think so. I think it's really just the next generation of indexing. You know, as you mentioned, we've gone through several different iterations and generations of indexing from single mutual funds that were great for diversification purposes, low cost, easy to get into uh, for, for an investor to get quick diversification, to ETFs that at least trade throughout the day. Perhaps people want to make ta more tactical decisions. Uh, they have the potential to be even more tax efficient than the traditional index uh, mutual fund structure. But then with separately managed accounts, not only do you have the tax advantages and the ability to do those transitions, but as you mentioned, you can do additional customization. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more and more of that as well as people become more interested in uh, topics such as ESG or applying social screens. Uh, perhaps they might do it for risk purposes because they own a stock in a company or in a certain sector. Or maybe they have investment portfolios on the side that are tech portfolios, let's say. So when you have that, you don't necessarily need to hold the full index or want to hold the full index. You might want something specifically screened out so that you don't have that overlap or something that uh, conflicts with your personal values. Okay. And so when you build that custom index, custom portfolio, you usually can't buy that off the shelf. It doesn't exist anyways in a, a mutual fund or ETF format. So people are coming to us and saying, hey, can you build something that excludes this stock, this sector, these particular social concerns I have, and then just build a portfolio that's tax efficient from there. And yes, absolutely. That's exactly uh, a, a main criteria and, and consideration that we use when building people's portfolios is to incorporate what their values are in their portfolios. Uh, so we just see this as a, a, a continuing evolution in the next step of indexing. Okay. And what are the costs associated with indexing? Are they higher or lower than mutual funds and ETFs? So, you know, it, it varies a lot. Um, and so you can certainly get mutual funds now for, for zero expense ratios, or at least zero published expense ratios. Um, with direct indexing, you know, we're not there at zero yet. There's a cost to implement them. And a lot of times those costs are there because the uh, operational side of direct indexing is much more complicated uh, for an individual. They have to open up a custodial account with typically a brokerage uh, arrangement because we need to buy and sell individual securities. It's not just a single ETF or single mutual fund. Uh, and then there's a lot of complicated things that go on in the background, especially with uh, the tax lot accounting and the tax lot settlement in order to implement the uh, tax efficiency properly for those accounts. So the cost structure is higher than a traditional index mutual fund or ETF, but we believe that the value is also there and correspondingly higher and exceeds that, that cost, both in terms of tax efficiency and tax savings, but also in terms of the customization, again, that you cannot get in those packaged products. When you talk about customization, are you talking about traditional customization and just applying ESG screens or you know, maybe doing an SRI or, or selecting a certain index to or a certain sector to exclude? Or are you talking about specific tax law customization? Can you maybe get into the various ways you can customize an SMA portfolio? Sure, yes. Yeah. So I'd say it's really all of those. Um, you know, people typically would think of customization as, hey, don't include this stock or that stock or this sector because I don't want to hold them. But with uh, 
tax customization, what's really interesting and unique about direct indexing within separately managed accounts is that no two portfolios will ever look alike. Mm -hmm. Everyone is unique. So we manage over 11,000 accounts right now. Uh, each of those 11,000 looks a little different from each other. So they might hold slightly different names, uh, but more importantly, they're going to each have a different cost basis for every position that they hold. And that's very, very important uh, to understand because it's what allows us to customize at the tax lot level and loss harvest at the individual account level. This is something that you cannot do with just a packaged ETF or a mutual fund. So by having that individual uh, separately managed account structure, we can maximize the after-tax value for each individual account. So your account is going to look a little different than mine. Your after-tax returns are going to look a little different than mine. Uh, sometimes that's because you started your portfolio 10 years ago, and I started mine just yesterday. Um, it doesn't mean that my portfolio is going to be better than yours. Each of our portfolios is best for our individual selves based on our situation, based on the cost basis that we started our portfolios with. One thing that you mentioned earlier is uh, around the idea of being able to transition portfolios. Can you maybe elaborate on that and, and how that would work from a practice management standpoint for a financial advisor? Sure. There's different ways that we transition portfolios. So I'd say, first of all, let's talk about the default way that we uh, like to, to transition them. So as long as we're given full discretion, they're essentially saying, here's my portfolio, do the best you can with it, given the process that you follow. And so when we use uh, transitions in that regard, what we'll do is we'll look through the portfolio, we'll sell off anything that's not in the index or otherwise has restrictions on those positions. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll look through the portfolio to see, is there anything we can tax loss harvest? Perhaps they're already holding positions that are at a loss that we can take advantage of. Uh, from there, we'll look to see if there's any securities or sectors that are overweighted relative to their benchmark and perhaps trim those off a little. But the rest, we're going to try to hold on to. So let's say they're index names, they're um, not overweight in the, in the index or weighted appropriately or maybe underweight. We'll retain those positions and then just use the proceeds from selling off from those non-index positions or loss harvesting and refill the portfolio so that it is neutral with the overall index by sector and distributed across different market cap size companies. Uh, and so in this regard, uh, typically let's say you had a uh, large cap growth value or core manager, there's usually about a 70 to 80% natural overlap mm -hmm. with our process anyways. So we're usually able to retain that much uh, just by default. Now, let's say they don't like that because maybe it's realizing too many gains or maybe they have a very misweighted portfolio that requires more gain realization. In that case, uh, investors will very typically ask us to apply a capital gains budget. And they, they're free to pick any amount they want. So they can say, limit my gains to $50,000 or $10,000 or zero. I want to only transition if you can offset with losses, for example. Uh, those are all options uh, in another way that they can customize at the account level by, by specifying what capital gains uh, they're comfortable with. We will limit the capital gain realization up to only that amount and thereafter only realize more gains or transition more if that can be offset with losses. So it gives investors and, and FAs a very, very fine tax control over the process and it doesn't exceed the amount of cap gains that they're comfortable with. So you can, actually, you can actually uh, customize the tax experience Absolutely. for the client doing the transition. That's that's correct. Really. So if you have an advisor that you know might be trying to onboard a new client 
or might be trying to you know change his business from brokerage to a fee-based business you can really customize that experience for the client if they want to pay no taxes uh, doing that transition, you can accept a capital gains budget. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's also very common. So it's not as though that was, you know, sort of a unique s situation. Uh, I'd say over half of our accounts are funded with stock. And from there, probably at least half of those, if not more, have a capital gains budget applied to them. Um, what's okay. also interesting about the way we apply that is that it allows the FA to work with the client's accountant uh, very closely so that they can do tax planning and add additional value. A lot of uh, advisors, for example, don't really think about tax planning very much or maybe think about it as an afterthought at the end of the year. Yeah. This allows them to work with their accountant or with us more regularly to figure out the best way to perhaps transition portfolios and revisit with them each year. So let's say we roll into January of next year, they can revisit the portfolios with the client and their accountant and figure out, well, are we okay with realizing more cap gains in order to transition the portfolio more? And if so, how much? And so, again, this allows them very fine tax control year by year instead of having a surprise cap gain distribution like you would from a traditional mutual fund. Um, with our strategies, you won't have any surprise cap gain distributions because you're the one that's in control. Wow. That's a pretty amazing product if you're trying to scale or grow your business, if you ask me. Yep. Um, in terms of you know, the, mar the, the marketplace out there, you know, every week I'm reading a you know, different publication that shows that you know, there's a firm out there that's acquiring a direct indexing strategy. Uh, can you talk about maybe the uh, length of time you've been running the strategy versus maybe the competitors out there and maybe some of your competitive advantages over uh, the rest of the marketplace? Sure. So with uh, our competitors, I would say most of our competitors look more like each other than they do to us. And by that, I mean that our competitors typically will use an optimization process. And what that means is that they typically will use a mathematical uh, system that will seek to track the index the best first. So in other words, have the lowest amount of tracking error. And then what they'll do is they'll try to add tax alpha on top of that. Okay. okay. Our process works from the opposite angle, where instead of seeking to track the index the best as our primary goal, we're really trying to maximize the after-tax returns and after-tax value first. So we'll maximize the loss harvesting first, and then as a secondary goal, seek to track the index. So an example of this would be, uh, let's say, 2020, first quarter 2020. If you start a portfolio with our competitors on January 1st versus us on January 1st, you'll see March rolls around, market has fallen off considerably. All, all, pretty much all stocks are down. Uh, with our competitors, if you use any sort of optimization process, they're going to have a tracking error constraint within that process, and so they would never liquidate their portfolios. If they did that, it would require their tracking error to go much higher than they're comfortable with. So they typically will trim off positions, but especially the, the large names in the index, they would never want to liquidate mm -hmm. because their tracking error would blow out too hard. With our process, we're comfortable liquidating the entire portfolio if need be because we can quantify the value of the loss. We know with 100% certainty if we realize this loss for you, you can capture that right now. Now we can't quantify the, be the benefit or loss, let's say, associated with the tracking error on the pre-tax basis going forward, but again, that's sort of an unknown. It, you can have positive tracking error, you could have negative tracking error. We don't know, but we do know that it works out over time. So it tends to be very mean reverting. So we're comfortable realizing losses when we see them because they may not be there again. 
again, like in 2020, by the time you looked at April, the losses were gone. So unless you took all the losses available in that period, you would have missed out. And so we feel as though there's a great advantage to our clients who are comfortable with allowing for more tr uh, pre-tax tracking year uh, in their after-tax returns by allowing us to harvest more aggressively. Is that pre-tax uh, tracking error that you allow uh, greater flexibility for the primary reason that you can really transition uh, assets in a very tax-efficient way? Where I would imagine if I was you know, using a direct indexing strategy that was using an optimizer and I was overweight certain sectors, are you saying that they would you know, uh, sell out of the overweight portion of uh, the securities that I had and generate a, a taxable event for me? That's exactly right. Yeah, I didn't really even think of it that way, but that's normal in our process as well, where the uh, the ability to transition portfolios is greater with or, and more flexible with our process because we don't have that tracking error limit or constraint. So, for example, we can hold very misweighted portfolio or concentrated portfolios. Some portfolios have uh, a significant overweight in particular sectors or even come in with a single stock, for example. Our competitors, as far as I know, none of them will take a single stock and hold on to that single stock in their portfolios. We're comfortable holding very concentrated positions in portfolios indefinitely, basically, as long as that meets with the client's needs. So if they tell us that uh, my tax situation is more important than the concentration risk, we're fine implementing that for them. So we're allowed and comfortable with holding more concentrated portfolios, more misweighted portfolios, something that may have very high tracking to the overall benchmark, uh, and, and only transition when the client is ready to do so um, with their tax situation. Wow, that's something that uh, you really don't hear too much of is this ability to customize that tax experience for the client. That's uh, very important, I think, when you're dealing with money management and, and trying to grow the wealth of, of individual clients. Um, uh, something you mentioned is, you know, you mentioned cash and stocks as funding the ways to fund the portfolio. Is there any other ways or any other instruments that you can use uh, to, to start uh, a separately managed account? Sure. So uh, we can easily take any uh, exchange-freighted security. So if people have ETFs, for example, that's a common way for people to fund accounts as well. Uh, in some cases, we can take mutual funds. They don't work as cleanly with uh, within a lot of separately managed accounts, though, because a lot of custodians have trouble settling the mutual funds with a specific law ID process. A lot of them will settle with average costs. But in, in some platforms, uh, they're comfortable with us allowing mutual funds into the portfolios. We do our best to transition with within those cap gain constraints uh, that they want to apply, and so that's another way that uh, people are often using us to transition. Where do you see the SMA market in five years? So that's a very difficult question. I think it's so dynamic right now. It's moving very quickly. Uh, I don't even know if we're going to use the term SMA anymore. Um, <laughs> it's becoming passe, I think. So I think you know direct indexing has sort of come on uh, on the okay. market as almost mainstream these days as a, as a term people sort of solidified to. Um, uh, you know, it, it may be that eventually everyone just refers to SMAs as direct indexing because it may be the dominant approach with an, an application within SMAs. Um, you know, they were not the first application of SMAs. Typically and traditionally, SMAs have been all active managers using okay. model portfolios. I think that's still going to stick around for quite a while. There's, there's certainly value there. But when people, when people started using SMAs uh, with active managers, one of the selling points was, hey, you can be more tax efficient if you use this active manager within an SMA. You can hold the stocks directly. And uh, you had some ability to customize it a little okay. bit. Um, 
But that really exploded with direct indexing, where those applications, we can now say, you can really, really generate more tax efficiency with a direct index in an SMA format. You can you know, customize extensively, almost unlimited amounts by comparison. So the value proposition is even higher with direct indexing in an SMA format. Um, <clears throat> so I, I see the market still growing quite a bit in this area. I think it's going to um, accelerate, especially as, uh, as people become more attuned to taxes and how that impacts their portfolios and their portfolio returns, how it can be a drag on their returns. Um, uh, you know, this year is going to be interesting because we may end up in a down year, but investors may very well still have a cap gain distribution in their traditional mutual funds. So they've essentially lost money and then they owe taxes on the money they <laughs> lost, right? Nobody wants to do that. No. It just doesn't seem fair. So within our types of strategies, uh, it's really designed to take advantage of those of this type of environment, this type of market, where if you're if the market's down, you know, so be it. But take advantage of that. Use it so uh, in a positive way, so that there's a silver lining. You could realize the losses, offset those capital gain distributions that are inevitably going to come up, and then position your portfolio for better tax advantages looking forward as well. Speaking about uh, the current year. How have your portfolios performed given the volatility and your ability to tax lost harvest? So this year has been fantastic from a performance standpoint, not because the portfolios are up on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis, they're still tracking the index just like they're supposed to do. So again, in up or down markets, right. that's what we're going to do. We're not trying to time the markets. We're not trying to uh, go into cash at any particular times, but rather we know that over long periods of times, if it makes sense for the investor to be in equities and they're comfortable realizing some risk in the shorter term with up and down markets, then over the longer term, they should achieve some market appreciation, but additionally have that loss harvesting. So in this year in particular, loss harvesting is larger than average. It's uh, much higher than, than it typically is because in most years, we're, we're, most, most years are up markets, for example. Uh, but in down markets, we're realizing even more losses. So this is where you're banking those losses today because you may not have them next year, for example. But if you carried for the losses that you took this year, again, you could offset more of the gains from next year. So that's exactly what it, it's uh, intended to do. I see that you tax lost harvest on a quarterly basis versus competitors who tend to harvest maybe on a monthly basis or more frequently. Could you maybe talk about the advantages of doing it on a quarterly basis versus a more frequent basis? Sure. I think what, what's really interesting about this question, so I get this a lot, and I think people are um, sometimes missing the forest for the trees here. Uh, these are not really, uh, this is not really the right question people should be asking. I think when, when people are focused on the frequency, they're sometimes missing the bigger picture and the bigger point. So, for example, if you only lost harvested once a year, yeah, I would say honestly, you're going to miss out on a lot. So, 2020 is a great example again. Right? If you didn't lost harvest in that first quarter, there was nothing to lost harvest in quarters two, three, and four, right? So, if you only did this once a year, you missed out. You probably could have gotten record high amounts of loss harvesting in Q1. Um, but with regard to f greater frequency thereafter, we've looked at um, loss harvesting over a variety of different frequencies, whether that was monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, annually. Um, there's a trade-off that you have between uh, harvesting too much and too little uh, in terms of your frequency. You want it to be often enough that you capture the majority of the tax alpha, but not so often that you have other problems. 
And I'll give you an example of those other problems. So uh, part of it has to do with the method that you employ. So for example, again, if you utilize our method where we can completely turn over an entire portfolio, liquidate the whole thing and down market, well, when you do that and you buy replacement securities, now you have what's called the wash sale rule to contend with, where you don't want, you can, but you really don't want to buy back those securities you just sold at a loss because then the loss is disallowed by IRS rules. Okay. And so if you did this, let's say you do this very frequently, let's say you do it daily, okay, and the markets are trending down pretty sharply. Well, maybe day two or day three, we liquidate the portfolio again and then buy the replacement securities. And then again, and buy replacement securities. You can see that this process could run out of stocks to use as replacement securities very, very quickly. And so now you've locked up the portfolio. But let's say the market still trends down. Well, even over the next 30 days, because you've locked up the portfolio from wash sales, you, if, you, if you decide to sell anything, you couldn't buy anything. So now you're left in cash. So you've done a disservice to the portfolio where had you just done loss harvesting, say, once during mm -hmm. that period, you would have captured all the losses and still been able to reinvest in the portfolio okay. and stay invested. That's one reason why we, do, we don't do it as frequently as our competitors. It's primarily because we will loss harvest very thoroughly and deeply into the portfolios, potentially turning over the portfolios completely. Now, our competitors, I mentioned earlier, we, they tend to use a optimization process where they will also limit the amount of losses that they are realizing at any time because they have a tracking error constraint. Anytime you have a tracking error constraint, by definition, you can't harvest all the losses because it's going to hit that constraint. And so if you're not realizing all the losses at once, you almost have to look more frequently because you left other losses unrealized in the portfolio. So unless you look again, you're not gonna capture those. Again, if you looked at 2020, if you picked up a few in March, partial loss harvesting in March, looked again in April, well, those losses might not be there anymore either. So you've missed out. But it's one of the reasons why our competitors almost have to look more frequently or have to loss harvest more frequently because they're not taking all the losses at any given time. So being constrained by the tracking error uh, doesn't allow them to really take all the chips off the table when it's time to tax lost harvest. That's exactly right. They're leaving a lot on the table uh, at any given time because that tracking error constraint is stopping them or prohibiting them from taking them all off the table. So Kevin, we've covered you know uh, a lot today. Um, maybe you know just to put it on you, why you and 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 why uh, Natixis Investment Managers uh, Direct Indexing Solutions. Sure. So, you know, I think there's some really interesting things that individuals can use uh, within direct indexing generically, but more specifically within our process, we feel that we can add more value to our clients from an after-tax basis because of the way we loss harvest more aggressively for them. Uh, we can customize more thoroughly for them with greater constraints than our competitors can. Uh, and we have greater flexibility to work with advisors uh, as well. And so a lot of these advisors are new to using tax-managed strategies. It's a way for them to have a deeper relationship with their clients. Uh, our, our own Natixis surveys have shown that a lot of clients are looking for 
tax advice or tax guidance from their advisors. And this is one way that they can incorporate that by, by offering them solutions that will help them with those needs uh, that they may not be getting otherwise. You mentioned this the strategy has uh, this amazing ability to generate uh, losses to offset some type of uh, future gain event. I think the common thing people think about a future gain event is simply selling a stock uh, for a profit. Um, what are other types of gains that this strategy could be used to offset those tax implications? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of times people think of offsetting capital gains only in the current year with the losses that we can realize. But as you mentioned, if you have net losses, you can carry those forward into future years indefinitely. And so if even if you don't have a capital gain now, if you ever anticipate having a capital gain of any kind in the future, you can use this this type of strategy. So it can offset, the losses can offset anything that would be considered a capital gain uh, in your Schedule D when you're filing your, your tax forms. Again, we're not giving tax advice, so I can't uh, be too specific on things, but generically, Anything that would be considered a capital gain for that purpose, typically that would include stock sales, as you mentioned, but it could be the sale of a business, it could be the sale of a home under certain circumstances, it could be the uh, capital gain from just the things that you're not even noticing now, but typically the you know more common things might be a capital gain distribution just from other investments you have, which you can't control. So in some years that might be lower than others, but in other years they might have this surprise large distribution that you weren't anticipating. So any, any of those, um, would be potential candidates that could be offset with uh, net capital losses. So listening through everything you've covered today, there's actually two very useful applications for the strategy. One is the ability to generate losses to offset maybe a future uh, capital gain that you might have, right? Planning for a future tax liability. But this ability to transition in kind and create this capital gain budget is also a current way to utilize this type of strategy in your practice by having the ability to, to mitigate taxes when trying to move from one strategy to another. That's correct, right. So a lot of times you may have an existing portfolio uh, with another manager. Maybe you don't like that for some reason or it's underperformed or you just it's, it's fallen out of favor. Uh, your, your typical solution would be to liquidate that, start fresh somewhere else. Um, but again, you might have embedded gains that you don't want to realize. And so by using this type of strategy, you can transition that into something that's a core portfolio or neutral with the benchmark that you're looking for. You could either use that long term or temporary until you find a better home for it that you think may be a, a more suitable fit. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Really appreciate your time today. It's always insightful to get information from a professional like yourself uh, on direct indexing and tax loss harvesting. Um, I want to thank uh, all of our listeners as well. If you want to get more information uh, about Natixis Investment Manager Solutions or direct indexing, please visit our website. It's im.natixis.com. Thank you. Thank you, Willie. Important information. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. Investors should not make choices solely on the content contained herein, nor should they rely on this information to apply to their specific situation or any specific investments under consideration. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell any specific security. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with mutual funds, ETFs, and SMAs. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks and expenses of any investment carefully before investing. Please read the risks associated with each investment 
prior to investing. Detailed discussions of each investment's risks are included in Part 2A of each firm's respective Form ADV. The investments highlighted in this presentation may be subject to certain additional risks. ETF, or an exchange-traded fund, is a type of pooled investment security that operates much like a mutual fund. Typically, ETFs will track a particular index, sector, commodity, or other assets. But unlike mutual funds, ETFs can be purchased or sold on a stock exchange the same way that a regular stock can. ESG, or environmental, social, and corporate governance, is a method of investing that focuses on companies that support environmental protection, social justice, and ethical management practices. Like all investors, ESG investors value returns, SRI, or socially responsible investing, also known as social investment, is an investment that is considered socially responsible due to the nature of the business the company conducts. A common theme for socially responsible investments is socially conscious investing. Future tax liabilities may be higher in an SMA that uses loss harvesting because it may have larger unrealized capital gains. Tax law and tax rate changes may also impact the relative value of index mutual funds, ETFs, and SMAs. Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax advice. Please consult with your financial advisor or tax professional. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker, dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC is located at 888 Boylston Street, Suite 800, Boston, MA 02199-8197. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution. LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Although Natixis Investment Managers believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, it does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Add tracks. 4950719. 1. 1. Expiration date. September 30, 2023. Pod 41 September 2022.